Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, Pastor Josh continues his series in the book of Romans. In this sermon, the message of justification by faith is explained and defined. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 4 as Pastor Josh delivers his message titled, Faith Lays Hold of Promises. Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. We're going to read verses uh, 13 to 25. Romans 4. You were, uh, you were prayed for this week, um, specifically on Wednesday night. Uh, you know, every Wednesday night when we gather for that uh, midweek worship time, um, some fashion, we're always praying for the church family, but we took this last one and just really specifically spend almost the entire time praying for one another. Uh, some of those things that scripture calls us to pray. Um, we're going to continue that this uh, coming Wednesday. Um, Wednesday nights, we gather for just kind of a simple time of church family taking requests, praying for those requests, one another, and then a little study through the word. Uh, we just started this past week, the book of Mark. So we're going to walk through the book of Mark together. So it be a good time if You've not been joining us, really want to invite you uh, to come be a part of that um, through the week. So that'd be this Wednesday. Romans chapter 4, verse 13, continuing to look at God showing us this truth. We're made right with God by faith. The biblical word there is justified, forgiven of sins, inherit eternal life, made right with God by faith. And that this has been God's way of saving people all the way back to Genesis, all the way back to the garden. And we've been seeing this proven from the Old Testament. So let's pick up in verse 13. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath. But where there is no law, there also is no violation. For this reason, it is by faith. In order that it may be in accordance with grace. So that the promise would be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, a father of Many nations have I made you in the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope he believed, so that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Let's pray. 
Our God in heaven, we have worshipped you. We've gathered together in fellowship. We've spent time singing your truths, lifting your name high. We've given offerings, we've prayed, we've sought you. And God, now we come to this time that if we understand your word is our highest time of worship. God, as we sit beneath your feet, wanting to hear your word, we wanna know you by knowing your truths. You have designed a glorious salvation. You have done what is literally the greatest work that could possibly be done to save condemned sinners and to give them an inheritance that is so rich, it's unfathomably good, it's eternal. You've worked in history, you've designed this in ways that baffle us, you show it to us in your word, and we are left astounded. We're left astounded at your character we're left astounded at your love, your mercy, your grace. We'll worship you forever for your grace. We're going to tell the whole world about how majestic you are because you've saved us. And I ask God that this morning will be another time that you show us the glories of your grace and how amazing this gospel, this plan of salvation is. Father, I, I pray that by the time we're done studying this passage and, 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 and this, this time this morning comes to an end, that we are just left jaws dropped amazed at how, how incredible your design is. Help us to see and know the depths of your grace, your infinite wisdom, the beauty of your plan, and the glories of the gospel. So that's a, that's, a, that's a tall task, oh God. So I pray that you help me not to be clever, but just to show what's here. You've put it all right here. It's in your word. Help me to teach it in a way that's helpful. Help all of us, oh God, to receive it from you. We love you, Lord. Please meet with us in this time. We ask it all through Christ. Amen. When you were a kid... Did you ever get stuck in a tree? You climbed up there. You got higher than you ever had been before. Suddenly you look down and you, you freeze up in fear. If that happened to you, then your next moment may have been to cry out for mommy or daddy. And maybe your daddy comes out and you tell him your dilemma right then. And it may have been that your father, well, he, you know, he may have said something like, you know, you got yourself up there, you can get yourself down. And he may have had lessons in courage. He may have also just been watching the game and you interrupted him. But he may have said that or he may have said something like, jump, I'll catch you. And if that happened, then your next words probably were, I can't, <laughs> I'm scared. The dilemma in that moment uh, is a dilemma of faith. It's not, a, it's not a dilemma of, do I believe in my father's existence? It's the dilemma of, do I believe my dad is able to do what he says he's, he's going to do? Scripture shows that this right here really is the dilemma of biblical saving faith. 
As we see the Bible point out many times, true saving faith, the kind of faith that brings us to be right with God, and that biblical word is justified, made right with God. The kind of faith that brings us to be justified is not acknowledging the existence of God. It is rather a trust. It is a belief that what God says he will do, what God declares is true, what God says he will do, we can believe that he will do, and that he, what he says, it will happen, and that if I really do lean my weight on him, my life, my well-being, my joy is safe. It's safe if I lean on him. Abraham was a man who did just that. The Bible brings us along in Genesis and, and shows us the progression of Abraham's faith. Beginning as a pagan moon worshiper to by the time we come to the end of Abraham's life, we see a man who believed God, trusted God enough to do what was maybe the most difficult act of obedience that we see performed in the Bible, the willingness to offer his own son, believing that no matter what happens, somehow Isaac's gonna live because God promised he is the heir. Well, later in the New Testament, okay, remember we established this principle, one of the things we pointed out in the Bible, God will often tell us what he's gonna do, do it, and then look back and interpret what he's done. Many times in the New Testament, what happens is there's a looking back on the life of Abraham and interpreting for us, explaining further what was happening, taking the promises he was given and showing here is the fullness of what God meant when he said Abraham will receive the land of his sojournings or, or to point out these kinds of things. In Romans 4, Romans 4 is one of those chapters in the Bible that does this. The gospel message, and we always want to clarify our terms. If you're new to studying the Bible, we don't just want to throw words out there and assume that you know them. If you don't, the gospel is that most central message of the Bible of how can sinful man be made right with the living God, though we don't deserve it. How can we receive eternal life when what I deserve is hell? And the answer of the Bible is that God the Father sent his son to be the sacrifice for sins rose from the dead so that now if you will come to God believing in him through his son, you will receive eternal life. That's the gospel in 10 seconds. There's more. That's really what the gospel, that's what the book of Romans is. The in-depth explanation of the gospel. But the gospel has been shown to us in this letter so far. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 28, one of the most important passages in all of scripture. The gospel was explained and now subsequent chapters are taking various truths and going deeper with them. Chapter 4 has been the way that you lay hold of these things. The way that you receive the promises, the way that you receive eternal life is by faith. Faith and not works. 
faith and not the law, faith and not religion, faith and not circumcision, faith and not necessarily these ordinances like the Lord's Supper or baptism, things which are good, by the way. Obedience, we're called to, is good and we must, but it is not step one in how we're made right with God. And we've been being shown this from chapters four, which in a way that I just think is really brilliant and genius from the Old Testament. Six examples from the Old Testament and then the last one pointing the finger at us and saying, we will receive this by faith. What we've been walking through is mostly the life of Abraham. David was thrown in there as well to uh, you know, bring another Old Testament illustration, but it has mostly been Abraham that we've been following, Abraham's justification, but then also certain things got established in his life and promises that he made. Today, we're largely gonna be thinking about the promises made to Abraham and how he received them by faith. We can receive them by faith And the fulfillment of them, some of them still in the future, are all dependent on faith and not obedience, works of the law, or trying to, uh, by human effort, acquire some righteousness. So the text makes seven major points. We've worked through the first five. Today we're going to work through number six, which means, Lord willing, next Sunday we'll finish up the passage and and, and going to look at the practical side of faith. What does it mean when the Bible tells me to believe, to have faith? We're going to finish up with those kinds of things next Sunday. So today is number six, and, and here it is. Justification by faith alone is the only way that the promises God made to Abraham will be fulfilled. The passage shows us three specific promises. So those will be the kind of the sub points A, B, and C today that God made to Abraham. They were fulfilled by faith. Some of them are still being fulfilled by faith and some of them are not even yet finished, still to come by faith. So let me show you these three and this is where we'll draw our our time today. So letter A, God promised that Abraham and his descendants would inherit the world. So that's promise number one. Let me show it to you in the Bible. Uh, Verse 13, for the promise to Abraham or to his descendants. Now pause right there. We're gonna gonna take each phrase here to make sure we understand this. What is this about his descendants? Well, the Bible actually makes a, a pretty huge point like it's brought up a lot talking about Abraham's offspring. If you got the ESV, offspring is the word often used, New American Standard, descendants. Uh, the literal word there is seed. Some of, some of the translations will use that right there. But it's a pretty huge point that the Old Testament says some things about, it's not shown in crystal clarity. The New Testament then comes and gives the big reveal about what is meant here. God came to Abraham in Genesis 12. God revealed himself and God made promises to Abraham. Part of the point that the text made was uh, God didn't say, if you're good, then you'll get the promises. They weren't based on works. They're based on faith. Abraham was called to believe, to trust God. Now that meant that Abraham at times had to put legs to his faith. There were things he had to do. um, Just like if you're up in the tree and your dad says, jump, 
You can't say I trust you, but not jump. The jumping shows that you trust. Abraham had to put legs to his faith, but we're told over and over again that faith was the critical basis. Receive the promise on the basis of faith. But when God spoke the promises there in Genesis 12, and then as he repeated them in chapters to come, he's all the time bringing up your descendants, your seed, your seed, your seed. See, one of the things that God did was this. God came and gave basic promises in Genesis 12. Like here's a real generic one. I'm going to bless you. Okay, well, that's real generic. What does that specifically mean? This is really cool. As you read the chapters that come, God would visit Abraham again and he would re-speak, renew the promises and then take him further in understanding what they were. So God came to him in Genesis 15, spoke them again, brought him a little further, a little, told him a little bit more about what this is going to mean. Chapter 17, he does the same thing. Chapter 22, he does the same thing. Each time going a little further. God comes to Isaac, the covenant son, and renews the promise, takes him further. God came to Jacob, then later speaks the promise, renews it. Guys, in, in one sense, you might think of it like this. The rest of the Old Testament is a further explanation of what God meant when he said, I will bless you. You might even go back farther and say that in Genesis 3.15, there, when God was pronouncing the curse uh, in the Garden of Eden and telling what was going to come, there's that, there's that ray of light. There's that hope that's given in the midst of the curse when God said, a seed of the woman. By the way, remember that later today. The seed of the woman will come forward, crush the head of the serpent, and the, the works of darkness will be undone. There's a promise of redemption. You might think of the rest of the Bible as further explanation of what did God mean when he said that? Genesis 12 is given a little bit more. How's God going to do it? He picks one moon worshiper and says, I'm going to bless the whole world through you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless everybody associated with you. All of your descendants, I'm going to bless. What does that mean? God keeps unfolding. God keeps going further. But here's part of the point for right now. Over and over as God would speak this, 12, 15, 17, 22, 28, as it just continues, God's all the time talking about your descendants, your descendants, your descendants, your offspring. Think about three promises together that will help you kind of summarize. God said, I will make you into a great nation. I will make you a father of many nations and to your descendants, I've got all these promises that I'm going to give. Now, all through the Old Testament, God kept dropping hints that alluded to the fact that more people than just the one great nation that would come from Abraham, which would be the nation of Israel, from Isaac to Jacob, 12 tribes, the nation of Israel, more than just that one nation would be included in the promises of God. But in the Old Testament, it was never made crystal clear. And the Bible has done that with many truths. There is a lot of times that God on purpose revealed things in this kind of glorious fashion of slowly revealing more and more until all of the sudden at the crescendo of history, when Christ comes, there's the great 
pulling back of the curtains to understand the depths of what God has been promised. Okay, so take things like heaven and hell. It's there in the Old Testament. It's not crystal clear. The New Testament comes, Jesus comes on the scene and now we're given this understanding of heaven and hell and the kingdom to come and what will happen here and these things. Well, in a similar kind of way, the Old Testament dropped hints that God was going to include more nations in these promises than just the nation of Israel, but it wasn't made crystal clear. But then the New Testament comes and there is this great pulling back of the curtain and in numerous passages, these depths of mysteries are revealed. So let me show some of them to you. Turn the book of Galatians with me, please. The book of Galatians was written to Gentile Christians. The Gentiles are the non-Jewish nations of the earth. So largely in this room right now, we're talking about physical Gentiles, okay? Like this is, this is what comprises this room right now. The book of Galatians was written to these Gentile Christians, and here's the dilemma that was going on. There were some Jewish Christians who were telling these Gentile Christians, until you guys get circumcised and start keeping the law of Moses and really join yourselves with Judaism, you aren't really saved. You guys are in danger of hell right now. It's good that you believed in Jesus, but now you need to become Jews. Circumcision, the law, you need to join this. So the book of Galatians was written to combat that false teaching, and it does it by even going beneath the surface, going deeper in the root there. The book of Galatians busts out the teaching of you, you Gentiles, not only do you not have to become a Jew in order to be saved, salvation doesn't even come by works. It doesn't come by any work. You're saved by faith. You're justified by faith. And it's got this long argument of showing by faith, by faith, by faith. And in the midst of making that argument, chapter three comes, which is another highlight chapter of the Bible. And watch the progression here. So chapter three, look at verse six. Even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. I really hope that's getting familiar to you by now. That's Genesis 15, 6, been quoted in Romans 4 like half a dozen times and all talked about. Here he is in Galatians 3. Look at verse 7. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. So verse eight there, pretty big verse. The Gentiles have now been brought into the promises of Abraham. This is a bombshell in the first century. But let's keep going because there's more to see here. It's really beautiful. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham. So Genesis 12, when God said, I will bless you. I'll bless those who bless you. I'm going to do all these great things. The blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the spirit 
through faith. Look at verse 16. It continues. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. All right, now pause there for a second. In your Bibles, as you are reading uh, the Genesis 15 passage and Romans 4 there, if you got the ESV on your lap, it read offspring. If you got the New American Center, it said descendants. What you need to know is in both places, the literal word, okay, so in Genesis written in Hebrew, the literal root word there is seed. So offspring and descendants, that's a good translation, but the literal word is seed. In the New Testament, written in Greek, Romans 4, the literal word there for descendants or offspring is seed. Watch the point that is made here in verse 16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. And he does not say, and to seeds, plural, as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed. That is Christ. Now, there's a little sub point here that I'll try not to spend too much on a rabbit trail here in, but watch this. Does every word out of the mouth of God matter? Does every word of the Bible matter? The New Testament is looking back on one word from the book of Genesis and making a point that it was spoken singular and not plural to establish doctrine on this. You can trust the word of God. Every word of the Bible matters. And here's the point that the Holy Spirit makes. Seed of the woman in Genesis 3. Seed of Abraham in Genesis 12. There are even things like the seed of David that would come later in Israelite history. Part of the point being made is the seed to come from Abraham was ultimately speaking of Christ. And we, by faith, are united with Christ and thereby become part of the descendants, part of the seed of Abraham. So this is big pulling back of the curtains. Let me show you just a little bit more in this uh, chapter here, verse 26, still in Galatians 3. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's, what's the word? Descendants, offspring, seed. That's the little, you are Abraham's seed, heirs, the receivers of the blessings, the receivers of the promise according to promise. So if you are in Christ, then the promises made apply even to the Gentile believers. We've all been brought together as the people of God. Second Corinthians 1.20 says that all of the promises of God find their yes in Christ. Let me, let me take you to another passage. Uh, one book after Galatians. Look to Ephesians for a moment. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, find verse 11. Once again, spoken to Gentile Christians, and that's made very obvious by verse 11 here. So watch what it says. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, 
So, so who's the so-called circumcision in the flesh? That would be the, the Jewish people who sometimes, some of them, not all of them, but some of them were looking at the Gentiles and saying, you have no hope of salvation or you need to become like one of us in order to get it, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Verse 12, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Jump down to verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Jump down to chapter three, verse four. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. What mystery is he referring to? This one that we're talking about, verse five, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit to be specific. So here's the great mystery now revealed that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So here's what this means. The promises made to Abraham apply to us in Christ because we have been made a part of that seed of Abraham. We've been brought into these things. So here's the point as it, um, as it pertains to Romans 4. How does this happen? How do you become a part of these descendants? So speaking to a group of largely Gentiles in the flesh, you were not born according to the bloodline of Abraham, so how could you become a part of this descendants by faith? But then later he's going to have a pretty big bombshell again as well as he speaks to the Jewish people who had a tendency, not all, but some of them like the Pharisees, had a tendency to believe they were right with God just because they were born according to that bloodline. And he is going to tell them, you are not a part of this seed, this people of God, just because you were born to a family, you as well, your entrance, your receiving of the promises is dependent on faith as well. It is only by faith that there is the receiving of the promises and all who receive them are made into one people. Everything that I just told you there was like throwing a bomb into a room in the first century. Now, we don't find it all that surprising probably because we've been raised in a culture that the New Testament was largely understood. These things were not largely understood in the first century. This is the reason why uh, on the day that uh, Paul explained these things uh, whenever he was at the temple and that whole crowd got him down on the ground and tried to beat the tar out of him and kill him, that's why. He gives a speech explaining the gospel. They don't want to kill him whenever he gets to the part about Jesus. But whenever he gets to the part where he explains that the gospel is now being extended to the nations, they start throwing dust in the air, ripping their clothes and want to kill him. This is why the gospel came to be hated by many of the Pharisee types in the first century. And they hated Paul the most 
because God revealed this the most clearly to Paul among all the apostles, and he showed this. In other words, Peter understood a lot of this. God showed Paul the greater depths of these things, wrote them, and revealed them to the church. He was the prophet that God used the most. So he was hated for these things. But friends, part of what I want to tell you is, here we are 20 centuries later, and this stuff is still being fought over in the church and outside the church. Many of the things that we're looking at today are actually highly controversial in the church. I, I don't really understand how they could be because mostly what we just did there is just read Galatians 3 and just see the points that God made. The Gentiles are included in the promises of Abraham. Kind of hard to twist that into the Gentiles don't receive the promises to Abraham, but inside the church and outside the church. Friends, it is still a thing today in the major newspapers of our nation. Occasionally the article will be in there on the, the dilemma in the fact, sometimes it's pointed at Christians scolding us Christians who say of Jewish folks, like we say to everyone, you're not okay on your own. To be saved, you must turn to Jesus. The major newspapers will oftentimes scold Christians, be like, you guys are so arrogant. Don't you know that it is abhorrent to them for you to say that Abraham is your father and you have these kinds of promises? This is still being quarreled over. 20 centuries later, this stuff is still relevant to hear. And when you read the Bible, you need to know, how am I to read this as a, as a new covenant Christian as I come to this? This is the Bible showing you how to read Genesis 12 that it is fulfilled in Christ in some greater and eternal ways. We're gonna see some of that in the next part of this promise. So still under the same promise here, let's continue. For the promise made to Abraham or to his descendants, we just spent time on that, that he would be heir of the world. Pause there. What is this promise? As spoken here in Romans 4, he says that Abraham and his descendants would inherit the world. Now, if you're familiar with Genesis, then your mind might be going, wait a second, I, I don't remember that one. Where, what verse is that? Where did God say that he was going to give Abraham the world? Because when you read the promises, God never specifically says anything about inheriting the world. So where does this come from? What does this refer to? Well, let me throw a whole bunch of scripture at you, like we like to do here, okay? Let me throw a whole bunch at you. You might jot down the passages. We don't have enough time to turn there, so I just kind of wrote them out, and I want to give them to you kind of fast, but follow the progression and the slow unfolding of history as God explained more. Genesis 12, 1 through 3, God reveals himself to Abraham, says that he will bless him, and he will make him into a great nation. The, the clearest reference there is that this would refer to Israel. But then he goes on to say, still in Genesis 12, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So later God came back and he said more, went deeper in explaining it. Genesis 17, here's what God says. As for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. So that's whenever he revealed that part. You'll be the father of a multitude of nations. God went on to then talk about giving him the land of his sojournings. 
right? So now we've been told more. Genesis 22, God speaks and says, I will greatly bless you and I will multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens, as the sand that is on the seashore and your seed shall possess the gates of your enemies. I think that phrase is significant. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And by the way, as we Christians keep keeping that in mind, that the seed is Christ, all the nations will be blessed. The gospel, salvation will come to all the nations. This is beautiful stuff, okay? But if you take those together, there's no place that God ever says specifically, you're getting the world. But later in the prophets, God goes even deeper and God reveals even more. That by making Abraham the father of the nations, all the nations will be blessed. They'll, they'll have the gates of their enemies. They will possess the land of their sojournings. We can start to see some things forming here, but later we're shown the fullness of the promise is actually an eternal thing that will be fulfilled in the coming Messiah. So for instance, Isaiah 9, a passage we often read at Christmas time, says this, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. In other words, this Messiah, this son of David to come will take a throne that then rules every other kingdom on the planet. All earthly sovereignty will be his. Now we're starting to see some things come about. In the book of Daniel, chapter two, verse 44, here's what we see. Uh, earlier, right before this, God gave Daniel a vision where he saw four kingdoms, a kingdom that was ruling and then three kingdoms that would come after him. It's really amazing, by the way. We have proof that Daniel lived, that he really did exist and write the book of Daniel before these things. It's one of those places you can show, here's a prophecy given before the events took place. It's amazing. Medo-Persia, Greece, and then the Roman Empire, which would come about four centuries after Daniel. Right after he explained the Roman Empire, here's what the very next verse says. In the days of those kings, which kings? Roman Empire, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. Pause. Who came during the days of the Roman Empire and established the kingdom of heaven on earth? Jesus, okay? Continue, set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed and that kingdom, it will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. So what's our point from the text in Romans? The promise made to Abraham is being further explained in all of this out of the people of Abraham. One will come who will establish the kingdom of God on earth and it will eventually rule every other kingdom on earth. 
Psalm 2, spoken around 900 years after Abraham and about a thousand years before Christ came. You have this amazing passage where God the Father speaks to the Son before they even understood all of those things. And he says this, ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. The New Testament then comes and explains even more as we would expect. So for instance, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins with the Beatitudes. You remember the one, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. They didn't just come out of nowhere. They didn't just come out of nowhere. There was a building of these things, but then Jesus, like usual, shines light to go farther. You continue on. You continue to see these kinds of things. Hebrews 11, Abraham was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Ooh, that's good. That's telling us there was a way that Abraham comprehended that the fulfillment of the promises was not just of earth. He was comprehending some things later in the future. Revelation shows the final consummation of these things. Revelation eleven fifteen: the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he will reign forever. And then the very end of the Bible, the last two chapters, what do we have? The new heavens and the new earth given by God. The old is destroyed. The curse is lifted. A new creation is made and it is given to his people. When we say things like when we die, we're going to heaven, <laughs> it's bigger than that. It isn't amazing that all of that that we just looked at is encapsulated in the three little words, inherit <coughs> the world. So do you see that the Old Testament gives these great realities a lot of times in mysterious shadow form, and then later they're revealed in these kinds of things. It, it is just amazing. The whole time you've been a Christian, you've heard Jesus brings us to eternal life in heaven. But we don't always see the connection that this is linked all the way back to Genesis 3.15 and Genesis 12 when God said, I will bless you and give you the land of your sojournings. I just, this is amazing. Okay, but what's the point as it pertains to Romans? How do you get that? How do you get the world? How do you inherit the new heavens, the new earth in the age to come? The promise is received <coughs> by faith. These promises are ours in Christ and we get Christ by faith. Faith is how we grab these promises that the Father offers. Faith is how we lay hold of these promises. Okay, so that was the, the first promise. Here's the second. The rest will go quicker. They'll have to. Here's the second. Abraham will be the father of many nations. Now, we already spent some time with that. So I just want to show you in the text and just kind of sum it up real quick. So look at verse 16. For this reason, it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not just Jewish according to blood, but all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, then here's another Old Testament quote. A father of many nations have I made you in the presence of him whom he believed, even God 
who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. How is Abraham the father of many nations? As we become united to Christ, adopted into the family of God, made a part of the people of God, Abraham becomes our father in a spiritual sense, this line there where it says, in the presence of him whom he believed, in the presence of God. In the presence of God, we are sons and daughters of Abraham and recipients of the promise. But the point, the only way the promise can hold true is if salvation is by faith. If it is by faith. Because if the promises were given on the condition of the law of Moses, then only those who, ha who had and then abided by the law of Moses would receive the promises. Which part of the point it's making is that means nobody would get the promises because no one can keep the law of Moses. So it is given and it is offered to the nation. So which means we have the promises that are there. Christ is tying the whole Bible together here. And we receive Christ by faith. And so listen, listen to one more little verse here in this section that Jesus said in the book of John. Jesus was speaking to a group of Pharisee types and they're, you know, they're, they're trying to get him to stumble in his words. They're trying to catch him in something. Here's, here's what Jesus said to them. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. Isn't that amazing? Part of what he's saying there is Abraham, at least in part, understood. At least in part, he understood these promises are bigger than just a little portion of land in the Middle East. Bigger than just some physical descendants. There is one to come. I think that's what Hebrews 11 is referring to when it says he was looking for a bigger city than just some city on earth. A city whose architect and builder is God. Abraham comprehended some of the depths of these things. And then the passage isn't even done yet. So Jesus said that, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. The Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. That's good stuff. That is good stuff. Jesus revealing all the way from the beginning, these promises have been rooted in Christ. We get Christ by faith. Man, that's good. Third promise. Third promise is that of Isaac. That of Isaac, the son who was promised. Look at verse 17. And look at that phrase there that says, God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. What's that referring to? It's referring to God's promise of a son to Abraham, Isaac. And even though his name is not stated in the text, okay, so you see that Isaac is, his name is not stated. I do want you to see this in the Bible. Don't just take my word for it. Never ever do that, okay? I want you to trust me, but don't trust me like that, okay? That's a sinful way of trusting your pastor, okay? Everything that I show you, I want you to see it's from the text, it's coming out of the Bible, we're not pushing it in. So read verses 18 and 19 and see, this is talking about Isaac. In hope against hope, he believed so that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken. Here's another Old Testament quote, so shall your descendants be. 
Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body. Now as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, there's our clue. There's our clue. And the deadness of Sarah's womb, yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. When he mentions Abraham's age there and Sarah being barren, we know this is what he's talking about. So let me tell you a little bit of the summary of the story. God came to Abram, Genesis 12, he's 75 years old. He told him that he's going to be the father of a great nation. Later, he told him, give me the father of many nations. Abraham was 75 and his wife, Sarah, was 65. They've never been able to have children, though they have tried and wanted children all their lives. But God comes and says, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. That was a stretch for Abraham to believe that at 75 years old, that he would have descendants like this. When you're 75, you don't expect to have any more children. You maybe know it's possible, but you're probably not expecting it. But time passes. Years go by and still no son. God shows up again in Genesis 15 and says, I'm going to make your descendants like the sand on the seashore. And Abraham says, okay, but I still have no son. We don't know how old he is at this point, but he's older than 75. I still have no son right now. If I died right now, my only heir is a servant who lives in my house. God says, your heir will not be a servant. I will give you a son. That's a stretch. We don't know how old he is there. It's a stretch, but he believes. He believes, but more time passes. Years go by. Abraham is 86. 86 years old, still no son. Sarah then says to Abraham, why don't you take Hagar and marry her too? She can give a son, and then the promise is fulfilled. That'll solve the dilemma that we have here, because Abraham, you're getting old. So he does. But notice what happens in that, by the way, and yes, this is intentional. Abraham believes God. He believes the promise will be fulfilled. But he also thinks that human effort is how the promise will be realized. He thinks that human effort will help God out in these things. And so to Abraham and Hagar, Ishmael is born. Abraham believes the promise has been fulfilled. They're all, they're carrying on. Promise has been fulfilled. And for 13 years, they go on thinking this is the child of promise. For 13 years, God does not speak to Abram. But at 99 years old, 99, God appears to Abraham and tells him, Sarah is going to have a son. Abraham replies, but I have a son, Ishmael. God says, no, no, no. It's kind of like God says, that ain't how I work. I don't need you to help me with your human effort. When I say I'm going to give something, I will give it. Sarah will have a son. 
He's 99, which means that Sarah is 89. This is now way more of a stretch than Genesis 12. When you're 99, you don't expect to have children, and you're also thinking, not going to happen. This is a stretch. But he believes. He believes. He trusts God, even though, what does he believe? God is able to create from nothing. God kept his promise. Isaac was born, which means laughter, by the way, because Sarah laughed and Abraham laughed. How's this going to happen? They laugh. Isaac's name is laughter, which is so rich in irony and so good. But Abraham trusted God that regardless of what happened, God was going to fulfill his promise. Later on in Genesis 22, when God called Abraham to offer Isaac, Abraham trusted God that even if Isaac has to raise from the dead, he's going to do it because he promised Isaac is the heir and there are going to be descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. I believe that's what's referred to there in verse 17 when it says the God who gives life to the dead. I believe that's a reference to later when he trusted God with Isaac and calls into being that which does not exist. But think about the whole dilemma with Hagar and Ishmael. There's something deeper here. The Bible shows that he believed, but it also shows he had some error in his thinking. Aren't you glad that God doesn't require perfection of faith to be saved? I'm really glad. But here's what God reveals in that whole episode. Abraham did works on his own to try to help God out. In other words, he believed it would happen, but he thought he needed to help make it happen. He thought he needed to add human effort kind of like, are you seeing this parallel? Kind of like thinking my human effort makes me righteous. I believe that's intentional here. Faith plus my works, my human effort is how the promises will come about. The same way that God created the universe out of nothing, Abraham came to believe. At 99, he saw the error in his thinking, came to believe God is able to call into being that which does not exist. And yes, I believe the Holy Spirit means this to go deeper, for there to be a double meaning here and setting up some things to come. So are you, are you tracking some of the parallels here? Human effort with Abraham, human effort in my salvation, trying to make me righteous before God. It's not just a coincidence that the same book of Romans, which tells you that you have no righteousness of your own, but God will supply righteousness out of nothing. The same letter which shows that your salvation is not from your origin, but God gives it to you is showing us this right here. Believing that you make yourself righteous by your deeds is believing that I need to add human effort to get the promises of God when part of the point is the God who gives life to the dead. You dead sinner. This same letter of Romans that later in chapter eight is going to say the mindset on the flesh is death. God gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. This same letter which shows you have no righteousness before God, but he will supply you with a righteousness 
What's happening here is just like earlier in the book, certain sentences and truths were shown in order to set up things that will be taught later. Right here, some groundwork is being laid. Some foundations are being laid in our understanding of God, which later on is going to come back to and build on those things. God gives life to the dead. That's a good thing because that's what salvation is. God is able to create out of nothing. That's a good thing because that's what salvation is. Salvation is God providing righteousness that you and I do not have. And salvation is God giving life to those who are dead. This is, this is amazing. I'm amazed that the Bible, even when teaching technical truths, can still have such poetic beauty. I believe all of it is meant here. Now, if you don't see it, you think I'm stretching the text too far, just blame it on too much coffee in my study time or something, but I believe that this is shown to us for these parallels on purpose here. Faith brings us to God. He's made promises. Faith is how we lay hold of them. Yes, friends, we got to know all that God commands us. If you're going to be a Christian, you need to know the law of God. You need to decide that you're going to obey it and know what all is required. But we also got to understand step one. Step one, how am I right with God? How do I lay hold of the promises? It's like you're on an island. A volcano's about to blow. It's going to wipe out the whole island. And there's one ship. <clears throat> Get your butt on the ship. But let's say that as you're running, someone next to you says, you know, whenever we get to our destination, when we get to this new place we're going to live, we're going to have to get new jobs. We're going to have to build a new house. We're going to have to, et cetera, et cetera. It would be out of order to stop right then and start building a house. No, you'll need to do that, but not now. Right now, get your butt on the ship. That's step one. Later, there are works to come. And in regard to salvation, there are works that God calls us to, but we got to understand step one. Step one is trust. Turn and trust. Salvation like by works would be like the volcano's going to blow. There's one ship, but you stop on the way and you say, nah, I'm a self-made man. I don't like people paying my way. All of these things I've heard, by the way, in response to the gospel. I don't like it when people don't think I can do it myself. So you stop and you try to build your own boat. But on this island, there are no adequate materials. So you gather little pathetic, rotten sticks. You string together a little raft compared to the ship. This, this raft is it's nothing. So you don't look at the ship. Just look at everybody else. And you think to yourself, none of them can build their own boat. Look what I can do. Trying to save yourself by religion would be like taking that pathetic little raft and then painting it. Painting it real pretty. You know, putting a cross on there. Some nice spiritual quotes. Compared to the ship, looks terrible still. So we're going to turn our back to the ship the way that God provided. And I'm just going to look at this. And I'm going to boast in what I made. So you launch your little pathetic raft and five feet out on the coast, it sinks and the lava overtakes. 
all the while, God provided a ship. You board it by faith. Look at chapter five, verse one. Look what it says here. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. Do you see your introduction to grace comes by faith? As a Christian, there are works. And then other days, boy, we're going to talk about the obligation to obey the Lord Jesus but we got to know step one. Step one is lay hold of the promises. Step one is flee to safety. And the way of safety that God has provided is Christ. You can in a moment grab on to the promise of life, eternal life by trusting Christ. But part of the point the text is making is you won't trust if you keep thinking, I'll do it myself. Christ has accomplished all that is necessary. I want to extend the invitation to you. If you're pretty sure after looking at these things, there's never been a time that you've turned to Jesus like you know the Bible's calling you to. Not just a little religion, not just try to be good, but to turn to be saved. Find me before you leave. Let me show you some more from the Bible. Ask your questions. See what else is there. But understand, you can be right with God before you walk out these doors. Lay hold of the promises. Trust in Christ. Let's pray. Oh Lord our God, thank you for your grace. Father, we continue to be amazed at the glorious salvation you have designed and how you brought it about. Thank you for the beauty of the promises. Thank you for the future reality of these promises. And God, this is what we look forward to. Help us to live as a people who understand how amazing grace is and the glories of what we have in you are. Help us to live in obedience, share the gospel, serve, feed the hungry, put legs to our faith out of joy and gratitude. Please give us your blessing as we leave. We ask these things through Christ. Amen. God bless y'all. Thanks for listening. And we hope you enjoyed Pastor Josh LaGrange's message titled, Faith Lays Hold of Promises. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.